0: When I was a little little kid, little ish, we'll say I don't know what I went to intermediate school, which I don't know is a thing anymore. Uh, so fifth and sixth grade, and I was in New Orleans uh, on a vacation. We didn't do many vacations as a family, but I do remember this one in New Orleans where I got called into a street magic show, which was really cool because I had like my you know Toontown shirt and my Everlast shorts with a T-shirt tucked in, sandals, socks, hat. Uh, like a Chicago Bulls hat that was too small for my head, like, I've, I've had a big head since birth, so nothing's ever really fit. And there's a picture somewhere, I'm sure it's been lost to history, um, of me standing there, and of course, the guy, there's a whole crowd's around, and, you know, they're all doing this, and as the, as the guy is telling the crowd, he's about to chop my hand off, because my hand's in this apparatus, he's also kind of telling me how it works so that I know that he's not really going to chop my hand off. And so there I am, and there's this carrot in the apparatus because the way it works is you, as you move, move it down, you hide the blade in the handle, and then but the, it still kind of cuts the carrot, So, but your hand stays intact, right? If that guy's still around in New Orleans doing street magic 25 years later, maybe 30 years later, I, I, I'm sorry I gave away his trick, um, so he had that moment, and he had me, you know, act like it really hurt when he came across, which I think I did a very good job of selling the pain of the street magician that I was supposed to feel. Uh, but I, you've heard me say before, and I will say it regularly: I like, I like sleight of hand magic. If you know a good card trick, I want to know it. Um, if you like, I, I still I don't know how it's happened, but in college I went to this place in New Orleans called Magic Masters. It's not there anymore. And I bought tricks. I don't know why. I was, you know, your parents are giving you like this college stipend, and I'm using it on magic tricks, which is like any, you know, <laughs> Mom, can I have money for food? What do you do? I was like, well, <laughs> check out these tricks. <laughs> and it's weird because like certain, not all of the tricks, but certain parts of the tricks, they're not this big. Have made it in every move from college to our current house in Spring, Texas. Like I, it's like it's really seriously like a little bit, a little part of a trick like this. And for whatever reason, anytime I'm packing for a new endeavor, I'm just like I can't get rid of this, and I put it in whatever box it's in. I unload the box and I'm like there it is. I'm sure I still have it somewhere. This is always my thing. And what is the question that you ask people when they do something like that, you know, card trick or whatever in your presence? What's the question that we ask? You guys know, right? Like, how'd you do that? How'd you do that? It's always what we want to know. How did you do that? Because we know that there is something about the trick that we just missed. Something about what went on that just got missed. And so we're always curious when we see those things to go, well, what was it? What happened? What did you do? You know, what changed? All those things we get really interested in trying to figure out. And people in the first century are no different. They're seeing Jesus, and they're seeing him teach, and they're seeing him do signs, and they're trying to figure out how he did it. And as you have been with us in the Gospel of John, to this point you realize that, that some people in the crowd are starting to go, huh, there's something more to him, there's something more to this man, Jesus, than everybody is saying. And others are going, there's no way that that happened, right? It's almost like the how to do that, right? Like, the, the people go, no... There's, you, there's something unique about this man. And others go, there's no way there's anything unique about this man. He's just a man. And you see that response time and time again to the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Remember, John is often told through dialogue, even probably as we were reading the passage, you're kind of losing who's talking where. And then Jesus is quoting Scripture to them and then trying to get them to respond. And so you're like, wait, who's who's speaking? Uh, but John is brought along by dialogue. And at the end of a lot of these portions of John, there is some decision from the crowd. And somebody in the crowd goes, a crazy man couldn't do that. A demon-possessed man couldn't do that. John, like we hear today, John the Baptist didn't do that. He couldn't do those kinds of things. This man has done everything John said he would do. There's all of that division about who Jesus is, and they're getting to the spot and this is all heading into John chapter 11 and the raising of Lazarus where they're, they're trying to get to a point of finality. The crowds are trying to figure out, how'd you do that? And today they're going to ask him, if you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, tell us. Stop bringing us along. Stop, stop kind of leading us on. Just tell us plainly who you are. And his response, which we've heard, will be, I've told you who I am. I've told you who I am. So that's what we're going to see today. And it happens around an interesting time in the Hebrew calendar, something we may not even know is in there. Okay? And so what we're going to see is we're first going to talk about this feast that they're in in John chapter 10. Some time has passed since the events we previously heard, in you know, six, seven, eight. We're going to hear about the feast. He's going to speak about his works. And then he's going to talk about his identity as the Son, the Son of God. He appeals to the Hebrew Scriptures, the book of Psalms, as he even does that. But we're going to start with the Feast of Dedication because if you look in 22 and 23, we've got to figure out where we are. Many of us, because we're all Gentiles in here, we just don't have, and I'm one of them, we don't have a great appreciation for the rich history of the nation of Israel. We, we have a pretty flat Understanding of the nation, and so we don't really know what feast is happening when, who's doing what. We just had tabernacles. We hear dedication. We really kind of flatten it all into one thing. And so, if you look at twenty-two and twenty-three, we hear this: at the time, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, <clears throat> and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. That's a, I believe it's on the eastern side of the Temple Mount. It's this big hallway. And it would make sense that Jesus is teaching kind of in a spot protected. It's still outside, but protected more from the cold weather rather than in the temple court itself. So even the, the clues or cues that John is giving us let us know, Jesus was walking along in the hallway because it was winter. And so he's not going to be outside. And it's the feast of dedication. Well, let me give a little bit of background on the feast of dedication. You're not going to find it in your Bibles. You go to Deuteronomy, you're not going to find it. You go to Numbers, you're not going to find it. You go to Leviticus, you're not going to find it. You will not find the Feast of Dedication in your Old Testament. you only find it in the New Testament and in intertestamental books, the books that, that happen kind of in between. We wouldn't consider them canon, part of Scripture, but history that is in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I'm gonna give you some names. You don't need to remember all the names, but I'm just gonna give you some names and, and some dates, okay? So there's this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? And he considers himself a god, kind of the revelation of God. So he considers himself. And he's showing up around 168, 165 BC. He's getting into Jerusalem. So we're 160 plus years before Jesus comes into the world in the incarnation. The Son becomes flesh. And what he does is he goes into the temple. He profanes the temple with Roman images, and he wants a pig to be slaughtered on the altar. Some call this, right? The abomination of desolation. Like that he wants he wants the pig to be slaughtered on the altar, which of course a Jewish person should not do. There's a high priest named Matthias. Matthias goes, No way. But of course, you find somebody who will go along with the plan. Somebody says I'll do it. This happens, right? This kind of idolatrous use of the temple, a, a kind of another dark mark in the history of the nation that isn't contained in the Old or New Testament, happens in kind of those four hundred years in between. Well, there's a son named Judas. They're going to be called Judas Maccabeus. So the Maccabees, the Book of Maccabees. Judas the Hammer. Right, so like Judas the Hammer, and they start basically this groundswell warfare against the Romans to try and regain the temple. Believe this happens around 165. So reestablishes the temple removes Roman idolatry, reestablishes and rededicates feast of dedication, rededicates the temple, and there's this probably apocryphal story, but this part of the history that when they rededicate the temple, the candles stay lit for eight days. And it's a miracle because there wasn't enough oil. And the candles stay lit for eight days. And is a part of recognizing God's provision of his people and the sustaining of his people at another dark time when the nation acquiesced to the pressures from Rome. This was around the middle of December. So, think about this. Is anyone familiar with a Jewish holiday that happens for eight days in December, that includes lighting of candles. Anybody? Anybody familiar? Just show of hands? Eight-day, yeah, right. The festival of lights, as Adam Sandler's song, probably that's probably what, what we know most about. Hanukkah. And so the eight crazy nights. This is Hanukkah. This is what we would call Hanukkah, the feast of dedication. It doesn't say that. But the feast of dedication, this is interesting in and of itself because we have in our minds this view of Jesus who perfectly fulfills the law. And there he is observing a Jewish celebration that was not in the law, it was outside the law. And this is a reminder to us that I would guess a couple of weeks ago, you guys, in some form or fashion, celebrated July 4th either by the setting off of fireworks or the being woken up by your neighbors setting off of fireworks. One of those two things probably happened. Uh, ours is usually the latter, um, where our neighbors, for a couple of days leading up to it, it's like July 2nd, July 3rd, July 4th. It's kind of this ongoing celebration. And so it's the recognition that this huge part of the nation's history that they still celebrate today which reminds them where they celebrate God's preservation of his people at a time when idolatry was present. The temple was profaned and it was brought back. So it's interesting right on the heels of Jesus teaching about how he is the good shepherd that John gives us a real life illustration of Jesus being the good shepherd at a time where the nation is celebrating a group of people who did fight back against the oppression of Rome and seeing God's hand to preserve and provide for them. Do you see what Jesus is even doing here, what John's helping us see in the connection to the Feast of Dedication with Jesus? Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's a more of, an, of a telling or an unfolding of Jesus being our good shepherd, who perfectly preserves, who holds on to his people, who will not forsake them. Even though there were some who would not acquiesce to the demand of Antiochus Epiphanes, on the whole, people gave in. The rebuke that Jesus gives to the bad shepherds of Israel in last week's passage. Previously in the history, the rebuke from Ezekiel, all of that is, again, getting us to Jesus. Who doesn't hurt his sheep, who doesn't leave the sheep, who will, under the oppression of Rome, suffer, die for the sins of the world. He will not run, he will not hide. At the right time, he will die. That's the connection that we get. And even those two verses, Jesus teaching in the temple at the Feast of Dedication, teaching about how he's not going to leave, how he holds on to his sheep, how he will not lose his sheep. That's what we get. The faithfulness of God is celebrated at Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication, the preservation of his people and his uh, promises amidst oppression and poor leadership. And in Jesus, we see the promised Messiah coming into the world to lead his sheep, never leaving them or forsaking them. So we get an illustration in the back half of John 10 of what was taught in the first half of John 10. Jesus being the good shepherd. Now, this is where we get people now asking him. Jesus is going to speak about his works and his oneness with the Father, that they are enough to show that he is the Messiah. Look at the question, verse 24. How long will you keep us in suspense or in agony? How long will you be annoying us by not telling us who you are? How long is this going to keep up? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Let us know how you did it. Make it it evidence. They're asking a question from a position really of unbelief. They have a specific thought of Jesus. They want him to make himself clear. We're getting toward the end of his ministry here. And so if it's not clear now, which clearly the disciples, we probably wouldn't have gotten it. But it's not not for lack of Jesus' self-disclosure. It's for lack of awareness of just what he is doing. Eyes being opened and seeing the works of the Messiah. So they want to know, how long will you keep us wondering? And what Jesus will reply with is that his works demonstrate he is the Messiah. He will demonstrate he is the Messiah. And it's going to be interesting because he's going to put before them a challenge And I'll put before you the same challenge when we get there. He puts before them a challenge about what to believe in. What to believe in. So Jesus responds with his works. So look at his answer. I told you, you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness. This happens early in the Gospel of John, right? Moses bears witness. Jesus' works bear witness. The Father bears witness. That He has all these sources. John the Baptist bears witness. People are bearing witness about who Jesus is. And he says, you have not believed. The works that I do bear witness, but you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. This goes back, remember, to Jesus saying, only those who are drawn can believe. Now, this can cause a little bit of dissonance for us because, especially if you're like me, when I was younger in the faith, I'm still young in the faith. When I was younger in the faith, and I'd hear that, I'm like, and I'm like, "Oh no, I'm here at church on a Sunday with my church family," and, but like, what if I'm one of the ones who doesn't believe? I, like, what if I What if I'm one of them? What if I'm just? What if I'm stuck? You ever felt that way where you hear these things and you go, oh, no. Or you read the passage about, like, the unforgivable sin or the sin that's leading to death, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and you go into panic mode because you're like, is that me? Did I do it? Have I committed it? And you really start to worry. You really start to worry. But that doesn't go with the heart of John. John. Because John wants you to know who the Messiah is. And John wants you to know what that Messiah Jesus has done for you. And John wants you to know that through believing in him, you can have life in his name. So Jesus is speaking to a moment. And that moment does have a theme of election. You don't, are not hearing this because you haven't been my sheep. You're not my sheep. You haven't heard because you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. Then he says this, my sheep hear my voice, meaning they they know who I am. They listen to what I say, and they follow me. If you were here a couple weeks ago when we heard this, or last week when we heard this, uh, the kids ministry had some of you parents record your parents calling to your children, and almost all your kids got the voice right. I think there were one or two that missed it, Um. But you realize very quickly that kids go, that's mom, that's dad. They know. So we panic about my sheep know my voice. Well, do I know his voice? Have I heard him right? What about this? He's saying, my works demonstrate. You're not my sheep. Because at that point, they're antagonistic toward him. They're demanding that he prove himself to them. And he says, I already have. I've already demonstrated who I am. My sheep don't ask this of me. They know my voice. They follow me. They listen to me. And then he speaks about the security that he gives to them. I give them eternal life. Well, we heard that. I'm the door. Anyone who enters through me, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No Roman leader, no authority, no one else will take them from me. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's going to cause some dissonance, right, for us? He just said no one's going to snatch them out of my hand. Now he says no one's going to snatch them out of my hand. Are they in two hands? Does the Father have some sheep, and does the Son have some sheep? No, he's going to answer that in the next verse. But I want to take a moment and speak to those of you who, like me, might sometimes be concerned about whether or not God really loves you and cares for you. That's a legitimate thing that people will feel. They go, I just don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the hurt that I've caused. You don't know the harm I've caused to my marriage or to my family. You don't know the anger that I feel. You don't know the ways that I worry or doubt. You don't know what's going on in here. Is, Is God happy with me? Or is God angry with me? Is God pleased with me, or is he disappointed? And I want to speak to anybody who feels that way, because I've been one of them. I'm sure I'll be one of them again, is that we need to remember the words of Jesus, and not the way that a specific sin or behavior might make us feel in the moment, because we really do live our lives like we're watching stock, If the stock's up, I'm doing well. If it's down, I'm doing poorly. If I'm having a good day, God loves me. If I'm having a bad day, God doesn't. It's very often how we live. Or we hear the story in John 9. Who sinned, this child or his parents, that he was born blind? What did I do in order to receive this? I must have done something wrong. I must not be in fellowship with God. Because in our minds, we have this view of fellowship with God as something that we control. We control. That if we do enough things and we act the right way and we, and we feel the right way and we read enough Bible verses and we're serious enough Christians, then all of that is based on us. It's not based upon the character of Jesus. Your salvation is brought into being by the call of God. And it is sustained by the work of God it is not sustained by your seriousness. It isn't sustained by how good or bad you are, how happy you are, or how generous you are. But when we start to get down on ourselves, don't we often immediately, we don't necessarily run to things that are true about Jesus, we run to things we can do. I just feel real, real good about myself when I do something nice for somebody. And so when I start doing things nice for somebody, I'm gonna assume that I'm in God's good graces. That's not how it works. We're in God's good graces because he's called us. We're in God's good graces because we're his. All he calls, he gives life to, and he holds on to. If the Father is more powerful than all, then there's nothing anyone can do, and anyone includes you, to change that. To change that. Now I know, and maybe even in this room, we come from traditions that might doubt uh, the security that a Christian has, one who belongs to the Lord Jesus, we, we, we come from traditions that might doubt that, where you better work, 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 just in case it isn't true. So some of us come from traditions where that is that general feeling, and we might even have that bent where we just go, I gotta do more things. I just need to be sure I do more things, rather than to have confidence in the finished work of Jesus. One requires faith in us, and the other requires faith in Him. One holds on to what we do, and one holds on to what he has done. If the Father is more powerful than all, if no one is going to snatch anybody, any of Christ's sheep from his hand, or the Father's hand, we'll look at that in a moment, that's the place we need to be. In those moments of concern or worry, or I really screwed this thing up, We do not need to run to what should I do to fix it. But to remember what Jesus has done to make it happen. Start there. Is there a sin that needs to be confessed? I'm sure there is. We are not short on sins. Is there something that has gone wrong? Absolutely. Are you probably a jerk more often than you think? 100%. All of those things are true, and it doesn't change the fact that God sustains you, not you. We have to fight against that. We have to fight against that. And hear the words of Jesus No one is more powerful. No one will take. And when you're coming at a time of celebration, think about this when you're coming at a time of celebration, and what you're celebrating as a people is when there was this period of darkness, and then God brought you back. You're remembering the, time, the, the bad times and then reminding yourself of what God has done. And Jesus says, it'll never happen with me, not on my watch. I take my sheep, I save my sheep, hold on to my sheep. Then he says in verse 30, what a great time to reveal more of this when he says this, I and the Father are one, which ties to the idea Of how he's going to give them eternal life and no one will snatch them out of his hand, verse 28. And then in verse 29, no one will snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Are they the same person? Trinitarian language will often say something like three persons, one essence, and bully God. All of them are fully God, but they operate for us and for our salvation in different capacities. We've spoken about the imminent trinity, which is that which God always is, above, beyond, beside, before, time. And the economic trinity, which is God as we understand and comprehend him in life and for our salvation. It's often how we understand things, but we need to reclaim the fact that God is certain things regardless of how God has acted in history. And so when he said, I and the Father are one, he means we work in perfect harmony because they are God. It's not a separate will in the Son than that which is in the Father. There's not a separate will in the Spirit than that which is in the Father and the Son. God works in harmony because God is one. God works for our salvation in harmony, though functioning in different ways. Because God is Trinity. Each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, has role, has ways in which he may operate. The Spirit seals, but the Spirit is sent. The blood of Christ saves the Father didn't die for you. Though. That's a prayer we often pray at Easter time. Father, thank you so much for dying on the cross. Yep, right? Like we get kind of, Our language gets a little cross-eyed because we don't have kind of an understanding on, okay, what does the Father do? What does the Son do? What does the Spirit do? But in regard to will, they work together. No one is taking the sheep out of my hand. No one is taking the sheep out of the Father's hand because we are one. The crowd's got it. They immediately understood what was happening, and they come from this idea in Deuteronomy, here, Israel, Lord your God, the Lord is one, where they say, ain't no way you are God. This can't happen. You're but a man. And so there is, of course, outrage. There is outrage about who Jesus is. What Jesus has done, and we see in 31 through 39, that next paragraph, it's Jesus' identity as the Son of God that shows he's from the Father. They are ready to kill him in verse 31. This is not the first time they've been ready to kill him. This is just another time they have been ready to kill him, where they are unsuccessful. They're ready to stone him, and Jesus says, well, what have, which work are you going to stone me for? Which work have I done that you'll stone me for? And they say, no, it's not the works which means they have a fundamental misunderstanding on who the Messiah is because the Messiah is a certain person, and that certain person does certain things. And so you can't can't separate those two worlds, what the Messiah says, who the Messiah is, and what the Messiah does. You can't. And so they go, oh, no, we're not not bothered by your works. We're bothered by the declaration that you and the Father are one. What? What? It's not the good work. It's because you, being a man, make yourself God. This is going to be, he's, going to get, he's going to essentially catch him. What Jesus is going to do is catch him and go, wait a minute. You can't have a problem with my argumentation. Your scriptures, which can't be changed, say this. Use this kind of language about humans. Now, he's going to use it in one way. He's going to apply it to himself differently. But he holds them to the fire and goes, okay. He says, is it not written in your law, this doesn't mean the Mosaic law, he's actually just speaking about the Old Testament scriptures here, because he's going to quote the Psalms. Is it not written in your law, and that's why sometimes when we read law, it's hard. Are you talking about Old Testament law, Mosaic law, just God's kind of ways as his law, the writings of the Old Testament, What, what kind of law? But clearly because he's quoting the Psalms, he's not speaking about the first five books. Isn't it written, I said you are God's? Now, what is he doing here? He's actually quoting from Psalm 82. Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7, reads like this. I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, it's the Lord speaking to, and the group to whom he's speaking, people aren't sure. But one thing is clear is that he's speaking to a group of leaders in the nation, and he's giving them the title, Little G, God. There's language in the Psalms where he's saying, your own scriptures use this kind of language to speak of just men. That's what he says. But look at his argument. Verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, now again, the word of God comes to men, and he's giving them a title of little g gods as rulers in the land. If the word comes to them and he calls them gods and scripture can't be broken, meaning you can't change it to make it mean what you want, you can't adjust it. So he's kind of holding them to a specific view of scripture that Jesus himself seems to hold, which is you don't tinker with it to make it say what you want, to make it more convenient for you. If that's happened... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into this world, the Word who comes into this world, do you then say of me, I'm blaspheming, you're blaspheming, because he said I'm the Son of God? And so, if you call these people God from whom the Word comes, why are you going to have an argument that the Son of God can't be the Son of God who was sent to you? And we've already heard in John 1 that he is the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and so if the word of god comes to you and the, and that word says something about man and someone comes to you from god who is the word why are you bothered by this and he even holds him to it because he's going you can't pick and choose the scriptures that you want you can't kind of go oh well that that was old that you know that was we, that was Old Testament Jesus. Like, well, that's all they had. They can't use that argument, so he uses an argument holding to the truth of Scripture to show them that they're being wildly inconsistent. You can't disregard the Scriptures because it's convenient or inconvenient. We have to hold to what they say. And so it should be brought to a conclusion of we should be, we should understand that you are the Son who came to us for us and for our salvation, but that's not what happens. Now, all of this is getting us to a time when Jesus is eventually crucified, dead, and buried, rose in the third day. It's all coming as we get toward the end of John, but this is continuing to build the intensity and hostility against Jesus. It's continuing. And Jesus is just taught from the scriptures about who he is, and now he's going to flip it, and he's going to say something that is rather challenging, which is, okay, maybe you don't believe in me because I've said it. Maybe, maybe me saying it isn't enough. It is enough, but like, just go with me. He's using an argument with the people. He's going to say, maybe that's not enough, so just look at what I do. Use what I do to determine who I am. Listen to what he says. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Do you hear what he's saying? They're asking at the beginning, are you the Messiah, the Christ? Tell us plainly. And what's his reply? I am the Messiah. My works have shown it. You don't understand because you're not mine. My sheep don't leave my hand. I and the Father are one. Wait a minute. You can't be God. He then uses the argument to explain why, as the Son of God sent to them, it is a right title to have. And then, in a sense, I'll use this word, he, he, he levels with them. <clears throat> if you don't believe in me, look at my works. Because through my works, you should be able to see who I am. Remember how we talked about how works or, or, or these works of the Messiah in the Gospel of John are a sign of who Jesus is. So you don't just look at the work, you look through the work at the Messiah, but you still have to contend with what that Messiah has done. And so he's going, if if you're not going to make the jump over works to me, look at the works and deal with that. Now, does it start to make sense why John is going to put at the end of some of these teachings and some of these works where some people go, how can a demon-possessed man do this? How can somebody do this work? Or when the court officials of the temple, they go and they don't arrest Jesus, and the leadership's angry with them, and they go, we've never heard anybody do this kind of stuff. Say these kinds of things. And so now you start to see all throughout John, there have been these moments where Jesus is doing work and the works are leading to some kind of decision, and sometimes that decision brings them farther in toward him as the Messiah, and sometimes it leaves them out. But that's happened through these 10 chapters now that's happened continually, where something's done, and there's this idea of belief, and we see many believed in him, which right is like taking another step toward Jesus as the Messiah. Others go no way, taking a step out. And so Jesus goes, if you haven't believed in me, believe in the works. This would be my challenge. Every Sunday, if you're in a community group, at community group. We contend, by God's grace, with the scriptures and Jesus as he has revealed himself. And you hear me, or you'll hear John, or you'll hear Rock, or Matt, or Nicole, or others declare things. You'll hear the scriptures read, and the scriptures declare things. And I am rather confident that if you believed the things that were said, Trust in Jesus. It would go well for you. It would go well for you if you embraced the Messiah. But some people just need to look longer. And so my challenge to you, if maybe you're in the room and you're a skeptic or you wonder, is to look. Look at who Jesus is. Look at what Jesus has done. Read it engage with it and give yourself permission to believe. Go, what if this were true? Could you hear the crowds going, no one's taught like that. No one said things like that. If you're in a reading plan right now, you're reading the Gospel of Mark and you're seeing Jesus' ministry, maybe Jesus' teaching in parables, you're seeing Jesus' instruction even through the Gospel of Mark. But that idea, who does this? The challenge is... To look, to look at Jesus. Churches, we, we we're hot or cold on how well we reflect Jesus. I know that. We're sometimes we have really good days. Sometimes we have really bad days. Other times we have a really bad year. I think on the whole, evangelicals have had a they they've had a big, pretty long run of L's for a while now. And so, on the whole, our our kind of flavor of church hasn't been. It's not looking too good. It's not. If you look at the, the men in particular, because often those guys are being foolish, but look at the people who lead the church, you're going to be let down. You're going to be let down hard. If it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen. If it hasn't been by me, just give it time. Like, like You're going to be let down. You're going to be discouraged, bothered. My challenge to you, when that time comes, is to look at the Messiah. To look at Jesus and see him. Because in all our preaching, in all our ministry, and all our singing, we still can't give all that he is due. But we'll do it with all we have. Look at him which seems like a pretty good way to live life. When all else fails, look at Jesus. It'll go better for you. But you don't have to wait until all else has failed. You can look now. You can look to him, and you can trust him. You can follow him. He will put you in his hand, and you will not be moved. He is worth being trusted. So I love the challenge he gives. Even if you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand. So it has a has an end game that you know and understand. That the Father's in me, and I'm in the Father. That idea becomes really important in John 17 as Jesus is praying about his disciples and about those who come to faith through the ministry of his disciples, that they would demonstrate the kind of relationship with Jesus that Jesus and the Father have. And so that idea of oneness with the Father that Jesus has becomes integral for how Jesus prays that his disciples would live, how they would operate in this world. So we look to the work, we look to the Lord, we look with a purpose. Because if we look with Open hearts. We go, Lord, show me who you are. I would venture that we believe. We see him. But if we look hard-heartedly, yeah, I'll look. That's fine. Yeah, no, hate that. Rip that out. Done. Right? If we go to the scriptures with a hard heart, the scriptures can soften a hard heart for sure. But if we look that we may believe, I don't think we're going to be let down. So they want to kill him, and he gets away. And then verses 40 through 42 give us what I think is a good place to be. It's another one of those endings where there's a response to what Jesus has said. So he went away across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first. I'll talk a little bit about that next week. It's one of two places. One's farther away. One's closer to Jerusalem honestly I was even interacting with like one of my Bible exposition professor buddies about this and he was like I think it could be either I think you know like it could be this one it could be that one I'm not really sure uh, but he's either far north up east of Galilee in you know east of the Jordan or he's kind of down closer to Jericho if you have a map in the back of your Bible just kind of go up and down the Jordan it's one of those two okay so that that's ruby but he went off left the crowds this is going to set him up for when he gets called to go to Bethany to raise Lazarus, which is going to start in chapter 11. He went to where John was baptizing, and many came to him and listened to what they say. John did no sign. That'd be John the Baptist. Jesus is where John was baptizing. John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And then verse 42, and many believed in him there. And so you see where John the author, some call that John the evangelist versus John the Baptist, just to separate out who's who, since the gospel of John includes two Johns. So John the author is moving this, every time we hear one of these stories, he's moving this to a place of decision. And so they get away, and there's thought to go, well, John the Baptist didn't do any of this, but everything he said would happen this man has happened at some point in time unbelief makes less sense than belief where you're out all you have left are empty arguments but you have nothing else because Jesus has demonstrated time and time again he is who he says he is and he's to be trusted held on to, knowing more than that, that he holds on to us. So we'll see as we continue into next week, this, this kind of final big sign that he does during his public ministry. Of course, he being resurrected, that's the thing. But the sign of raising of Lazarus, as we get to the final sign, big sign in the gospel of John in those first 12 chapters, what we get to see is Jesus has demonstrated he's the gate, he's the good shepherd, he's the light of the world, all these things, we're going to see that he is the one who gives life. And so he's going to continue, as we see how John is writing this out for us, we're going to continue to see Jesus is all the things he was promised to be. And he's a life giver. We'll see that over the next coming weeks.